0: Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Dr. Humanali is a Professor of Preventative Medicine and Biochemistry and Molecular Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. His research program is focused on multidisciplinary genetics, genomics, approaches using complex disorders, with an emphasis on cardiovascular, metabolic and inflammatory diseases. The Professor is also the President-elect of the International Society of Nutrigenomics and Nutrigenetics, an education society working to increase the understanding of the role of genetic variation and individual dietary responses and the role of nutrient and gene expression generally. Among its various educational aims, the Society assists in interpreting new facts into sound nutritional advice for the public. But also corrects or stops unwarranted claims and prevents the creation of unwarranted expectations in patients using the general public. Good morning, Herman. How are you going? Good. How are you, Nathan? Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thanks for taking time out in your day. It's the end of the day over there in Southern California. And so I've uh, invited you across because you're the president elect for the uh, International Society of Nutrigenetics and Nutrigenomics, we'll just call it ISNN, I suppose. Um, and also, obviously, a professor in molecular medicine. Can you give us a bit more of your background and perhaps how you got involved with the ISNN and, and why?
1: Sure. So, um, in graduate school, I did genetics, mostly human genetics, for my uh, dissertation work, uh, trying to understand um, what are the genetic factors that are associated with uh, high cholesterol and high lipid levels. Um and then subsequent to that, I did some postdoctoral training where I uh, 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 incorporated mouse genetics. So, one of the things that we like to do is go back and forth between mouse and human. We believe that's a sort of a very efficient and a biologically insightful way to do these kinds of studies. And then after that, I came to uh, USC um, as a faculty member. That was about 13 years ago, 14 years ago now. And my research program is focused on understanding the genetics of cardiovascular diseases, like you mentioned in the introduction. And an important component of that is not just like your genetic predisposition, but also your environment. And specifically here, we're talking about diet. So, um, you know, we did some studies way back when uh, where we found a gene, let's say for atherosclerosis, and we noticed that uh, if you carried the genetic variant your uh, risk of atherosclerosis was modulated depending on like your polyunsaturated uh, fatty acid intake. And by this, I mean, I'm talking about omega-6 or omega-3s. The omega-3s are sort of known as the fish oil. And so that's really what got me into the ISNN. Um, I was contacted by the people who were at the time leading the society. And because of the studies that we've done since then, I've become more and more involved. And as you mentioned, I'm slated to Uh, sort of uh, become, uh, well, lead the society for the next few years until we pass on the torch to somebody else. But that's really how I came about, uh, you know, sort of becoming affiliated with the society.
0: Great. And you're also part of the American Heart Association, is that correct?
1: That's right. That's right. I'm also part of the American, I'm a member of the American Heart Association and uh, American Society of Human Genetics. Um, And so that's really where most of my research is focused on, the genetics of uh, heart disease and atherosclerosis.
0: Okay. Great. So I think um, the omega-3, omega-6 is probably a good uh, introduction to this nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics. Um, certainly when I was back at college, and you probably remember maybe in the 90s and early 2000s, it was all about omega-3s and prostaglandins and the, the desaturases and so forth. But I think that's probably only part of the picture on how all these uh, fatty acids and other dietary components work now, and you're really exploring how these, um, these constituents interact with the genome. So, I want to dive into it. Um, first of all, from the top, there's a bit of confusion in, in, the, in the nomenclature about the terminology. Can you just clarify nutrigenetics versus n- nutrigenomics?
1: Sure. So, you know, uh, people have multiple uh, definitions of, and how they refer to these terms. I'll give you my personal definitions. Nutrigenetics refers to the nutrition part is very straightforward. You know, it's, it's just dietary components and things like that. And uh, the genetics part refers to DNA variation. So, as you know, there's, uh, you know, there's DNA sequence, and not everyone has the same exact sequence. Most of it, you know, over 99% of it's the same, but there are small differences. And nutrigenetic refers to how those small differences interact with diet and nutrition to affect an outcome. Now, that outcome can be a disease outcome. It can be just like a sort of a, a quantitative trait, like blood pressure or or blood cholesterol levels, et cetera. But the, the, the term nutrigenetics to me refers to just how DNA variation interacts with uh, nutrition and dietary factors to affect an outcome. Um, by comparison, nutrigenomics is is sort of similar, but uh, takes a, it's a little bit of a different take. So what happens biologically um, is that DNA is, in order for DNA, they say that it codes for proteins or it's like the blueprint of life, et cetera. And the way that happens is that you have the DNA sequence that is transcribed into a different molecule called RNA, not DNA, but RNA. And RNA is uh, sort of the message that then allows you to make the protein. So... Nutrogenomics nutrigenomics uh, refers to the effect of nutrients and dietary factors on how much a gene is expressed as opposed to the variation in the sequence of the gene, if that makes sense. Yes. So, for example, like a fatty acid or fats can go on and, and, and increase the amount of like those enzymes you mentioned, like the desaturases, etc. And so that could be a nutrigenomic context. Um, You can take the genomics and and move it to another level as well. There's other things called like epigenetics, which is like sort of like the methylation of DNA, et cetera. But just to keep it sort of simple, nutrigenetics refers to how genetic variation or DNA variation interacts with uh, dietary factors. And uh, nutrigenomics refers to how dietary factors and uh, nutritional uh, components affect the expression of our genes.
0: Great. That's fantastic. And we'll uh, come back to those um, over the next sort of 40 minutes or so. Um, So also in this field, the the, the term personalized medicine is used in this uh, area. So I just wanted to get a touch upon that because um, I suppose for natural medicine practitioners, they would argue they've always practiced personalized medicine, but in the literature and I think particularly in the United States, uh, this precision of personalized medicine has become in vogue. Can you just add or your definition of what personalized medicine is and, and what it's potentially offering healthcare?
1: Sure. So, you know, I kind of agree with what you just mentioned about practitioners saying we always practice personalized medicine. It's true. So uh, you also touched upon the other term, which I think is probably a little bit more accurate in what I, what I imagine what people are referring to, which is precision medicine. So the idea is um, that based on not just your clinical sort of like presentation, meaning like whatever your blood, uh, your blood cholesterol levels are, let's say, or your blood pressure or your weight, et cetera, is there other health information that we could use to sort of fine tune your health care? And obviously, genetics has become a really like big player in this, particularly in the field of cancer. So, um, you know, like when they say precision medicine, the idea is well, you know, if can I tweak, let's say, the dosage of a drug that I'm going to give you to maximize the benefit for you, or to minimize any potentially unwanted side effects. That would be a definition of let's say precision medicine. You're 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 practicing medicine in a more precise way based on some biological, in this case, potentially genetic information. Um, so that's sort of like, I think, what what people are referring to. Now, you can weave in nutrition into that, right, and you can still do precision medicine and precision healthcare, except the component that you're using isn't just genetics in, uh, by itself, but it's like genetics based in, uh, on then how to, uh, let's say, modulate your diet to affect an outcome.
0: Great. All right, well, let's look into the first one, the nutrigenetics. That's uh, the genetic code the individual possesses and how that may uh, determine your unique individual nutrient intake. So uh, this is probably the, the one contentious area I want to explore because, as you probably know, um, there's divided opinion both in literature and in the public. It's probably a bit more prolific over where you are with the 23 and Me and the accessibility there, but th- that is also occurring in Australia. We have our own uh, testing companies as well doing maybe more limited panels, but um, we can also access the 23 Me. So first of all, let's just cover off some of the, the, the basics about uh, gene mutations, say a single gene mutation versus a, a sing, sing, single nucleotide polymorphism the SNPs we're testing for in our patients.
1: Sure. So, and I can, I can give you this example in the context of like uh, uh, nutrigenetics, so to speak. So when people refer to, to like single gene mutations, what they're talking about is a DNA variation. There is a difference in the sequence of that person's DNA with the mutation, But the nature of that difference is so severe that it, for the most part, knocks out, let's say, the gene's function. Right, And so it's a severe type of DNA change. Or like the DNA change manifests in a more severe way in terms of like a clinical outcome, right? And these are like the what we call, let's say, the single gene disorders. And you may have heard of these like phenylketonuria is one. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Sure. Disease. Uh, cystic fibrosis, et cetera. These are all diseases that are caused by DNA changes, but the DNA change sort of is so severe that it knocks out, in almost all the cases, gene function. Okay, so that's, and, and they're very rare. That's the other thing I should say, is that these single gene mutations are very rare in the population because you can, you know, you, we don't see phenylketonuria or Huntington's or cystic fibrosis a lot. And by a lot, I'm saying comparatively to, for example, heart disease or diabetes or cancer. Okay. Now, a single nucleotide polymorphism or a SNP that you refer to is a DNA change as well, except it doesn't have as severe effect on gene function or expression. Um, And why do we know that? Because these SNPs are pretty frequent in the population. You can have a SNP be carried by 30% of the population That SNP might increase or decrease the risk of heart disease a little bit, but clearly if you have the SNP, you don't have heart disease because otherwise 30% of the population would have heart disease, right? So uh, another way to put it is that the correlation between carrying, let's say, the single gene mutation and getting the disease is almost 100%, whereas if you carry a SNP, the correlation with getting a disease, in this case heart disease or some sort of adult onset disease, is much lower. Right? much, much lower. So that's how you sort of differentiate between single gene mutations and nucleotide polymorphisms.
0: Great. Okay. So many of our practitioners or uh, are looking at uh, most of the SNPs. Now... Uh, we've we've often we've surveyed a lot of our practitioners to see if they're using it. Some are, some are. And it's quite divided opinion with our practitioners on the the utility. I just want to go through some of the potential uh, contentious areas. So, first of all, a lot of the professional bodies still are not um, endorsing, for want of a term, the use of these tests, like the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, um, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and a couple others. So I'll get your take in a minute. So the first thing is one of the contentions are the actual associations that you just mentioned with SNPs and disease risk. What's the, um, over you know, the, the, the high level view currently of SNPs and associated disease, particularly just a, a single SNP.
1: Well, okay. So, so in the genome, there's like any one of us carries, I don't know, anywhere from anywhere, I would say like a few million SNPs. It can be up to five or 6 million, but let's say we like two to 3 million SNPs, right? Um, and in the last 10 years or so, um, The association of SNPs with disease outcomes has become much, much better. And the primary reason for that, well, there's two reasons. One is technological advances. And uh, with that, I mean the ability to uh, interrogate all of the DNA variants in the genome. First, that was done using like these DNA chips. Now, sequencing being so low, you can just sequence the entire genome and know where all the SNPs are. So that was one major advance. The second major advance was the ability to recruit and collect large populations, like cases and controls, people with the disease and controls. No individual study was all that large, although you're getting these biobanks that are being collected right now. But what, what people did in the field was they combined their data together. So one study had a couple thousand people, another study had a few thousand people, another study had a few hundred people, etc. And by combining the data, the genetic data and the clinical data across all of these studies, you can carry out much more sort of uh, well-powered genetic studies. And now, this has been done for heart disease, for diabetes, for cancer, just about any adult onset disease that you can think of, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, et cetera, the list goes on and on. People have done these sort of large-scale genetic studies. And the consensus is that for most of these diseases, there are now at least a dozen, in some cases there might be a few dozen, SNPs that are, I I mean, I don't want to use the term conclusively, but... Very reproducibly associated with the diseases. So, in fact, I think you know you would ask anyone in the field, "Well, do you think this SNP, you know, is associated with heart disease or diabetes or Alzheimer's?" You know, for like a couple dozen or so, people would say yes, I think overwhelmingly support that uh, that sort of conclusion. So, it just depends on which particular SNP you're referring to when you ask, "Is it associated or not?"
0: Right. So, what are the ones off the top of your head? Um that are mostly linked to, or, or better linked to, disease.
1: Well, top dozen or
0: top six or something.
1: Yeah, sure. So, like, the easiest is to sort of like just go by disease and just give you like maybe the yeah. top two. So, for example, like the long known association of ApoE four with Alzheimer's disease was yeah. for sure confirmed in these latest genome wide association studies that I mentioned. But interestingly enough. It was originally found like 25 years ago, simply because somebody tested that SNP individually way back when, you know, and they showed that association. It was Alan Rose's. And then that was subsequently confirmed. So there's no doubt that APOE4 is associated with, uh, with, with Alzheimer's. In the heart disease field, there are SNPs in genes that control cholesterol levels, and those have been shown To be associated with not only, uh, for example, LDL or the bad cholesterol, but also with heart disease. Um, In the cancer field, people have found associations with this region on chromosome 8. It's a very large region. There is a cancer gene in the region, so they think that that's the mechanism. Um, I'm just giving you basically like sort of like the top hit, so to speak. Diabetes, there's a gene called TCF7... uh, TCF7... TCF7... Sorry, you're gonna uh, what it, TCF7, and that has been associated with diabetes in multiple studies. Um, for obesity, there's a gene called FTO, and there's a SNP in that gene that's associated. So, mm-hmm. you know, these are just the top hits. But for you know, you can go and you can ask, well, how many genes in total have been identified for heart disease? And the the the, the, the count uh, uh, by the latest paper that just came out is like upwards of fifty or sixty. For for diabetes, it's like thirty. For height. For example, you can find SNPs associated with height. It's like well over two hundred. So it just depends on the disease and the clinical trait that you're looking at.
0: Great, that's probably more positive than I um, that I, I found. But I'm certainly relying on your information. Um, so I'll move to the next question, and this is sort of the bit of the devil's advocate. And I think there's someone at your next conference talking about this to genotype or not to genotype. So we're establishing association here now. The, the thing that's sort of plaguing me is, like, can, does this information help? I think, I'll use the FTO gene, for example. Um, yeah, it seems like they've, people who possess this allele may put on a little bit more weight, um, yet they also sort of seem to lose weight better than um, non-carriers. But does it actually, and this comes into personalized medicine, knowing the, the SNP, does that give us any information on how to personalize our instructions or make precision medicine, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, you know, um, to be able to answer that question, you need two things. One, you need to know the SNP, which obviously in the case of FTO or any of the other ones I mentioned to you, we know already. The question is, if you want to affect a health outcome by doing something, what is it that you have to do? In the case of FTO, knowing that you're at increased risk of gaining weight because you carry the FTO variant, does that mean that If you cut down on, let's say, certain dietary things or if you exercise more or something like that, is that going to sort of like, you know, get you to a healthier place, right? You're basically asking, can I do something based on my genetic predisposition to help me? And while we know the genetic component of that, people really don't know the other sort of like, what do I have to do, the environmental component, right? They don't know, okay, if I carry FTO, should I eat less fat? Should I eat less sugar? Or should I just do this or do that? Should I exercise more? Those are the studies that are lacking. So the the, the reason there's confusion and there's debate is because, well, yeah, okay, so what if you know what your FTO genotype is? What are you going to do about it? And what people are claiming you should do about it, is that really supported by the data? Um, And that's where the conundrum is right now.
0: Yes. Um, Perhaps we can look at the the food for me study, which I think capture some of these um, issues about um, whether genotyping is of benefit and, and how much. So you, um, perhaps if you can give us a bit of a, a snapshot on the study and, and what they've found so far.
1: Yeah, so the latest that I've, I've seen, I'm not completely familiar with the food for me, but from the latest paper that I saw is that, you know, one of the benefits that they showed was that if you actually genotype people and you give them that information, they are more likely to follow your, let's say, dietary guidelines. So it's like if people become aware of their predisposition beyond just saying that you know you need to watch your di- weight or your family history, et cetera. But you actually give them personal genetic information saying you really carry this variant for this sort of disease, et cetera? It seems to make people uh, uh, sort of stick to the dietary guidelines better. Right, but they're not necessarily specific guidelines. Um, yes, you should like eat this or eat that. It's just general. And this was a paper that was published recently. Um, so in that context, I think sure. You know, it makes if if if, if it seems that people, if they know their genetic uh, sort of uh, information, it helps. It helps them lead a healthier life. Then there's no harm in that right but if you're going to genotype somebody and give them a specific dietary recommendation i think there would has to be more data uh to support that and and that's what the i think the field has to move towards
0: okay great i'll just add a bit to the food for me so i think they broke them into four groups one was a control who just got told to eat better uh and then there was three uh categories of personalization one i'm not quite sure on the detail but they basically Uh, tailored their diet based on their food preferences and gave them a more personalized diet. The second group um, received that plus a phenotype feedback about their waist circumference and BMI and so forth. And that reinforced the message to to exercise and so forth. And thirdly, the the, the final group got all those two plus the genotype on uh, about five SNPs like uh, MTHFR and FTO and so forth and got feedback on those. But I think what I've found is whatever sort of degree of personalization, that, that was all pretty equal whether you got told to eat um, broccoli because you like broccoli type thing in that first group or because you've got the waist circumference that says so or plus you've got the, the genotype. They all pretty much got similar results regardless of what sort of level of um, you know detail they went into. So we'll, we'll find out more in time about that. I thought it was a good study because it did have those sort of levels of um, personalization to it. Um, sure. Uh, so, just moving on, the other one is rather than looking at the the single SNPs, is that the whole um, genome-wide association studies? Um, can you perhaps discuss the benefits and maybe also the limitations of using that data for um, personalised medicine?
1: Yeah. So, so the benefit of that is um, uh, rather than, like, for example, like the, what Food for Me did was that they selected a like five. Right? And, and uh, you know, they pick them based on some sort of like uh, hypothesis or some sort of evidence yeah. uh, beforehand. The genome wide association method is sort of a more agnostic approach in that it doesn't specifically select SNPs in, in, in specific genes, it just scans the entire genome. So basically, you get all of your genetic information back. And, th- and that's what I was referring to when I mentioned earlier uh, like, you know, each person carries, let's say, a few million SNPs. A genome wide association study. Uh, gives you the data for those few million SNPs. And so maybe a lot of that information is not useful because the SNPs are not associated with anything or we're not aware of what they're associated with. Some of the data will be useful because then you'll be able to know if you carry, for example, the top obesity genes or the top heart disease genes or uh, a controversial area, if, for example, you carry ApoE4, et cetera. So basically, you have all of the data at your disposal, it's just a matter of how you can interpret it based on the evidence that's out there, based on research studies, et cetera. Um, and one of the benefits of it was that, you know, I mentioned to you these large-scale studies that were done for heart disease where people combined all their data together, et cetera. Um, that was all done with genome-wide association studies because people just said, well, instead of like trying to like, hand-pick SNPs to test, why don't we just scan the entire genome and see what comes out? And one of the very interesting things that have come out of GWASs GWAS is that what people thought about being like, let's say, the top SNPs for heart disease or cancer or diabetes were not what they thought. In fact, they were genes that nobody would ever even think are associated with these diseases. So it's been very illuminating in that regard.
0: Great. Well, I'll continue to look forward to see what comes from there. All right. Well, um, we'll flip to the other side of that what we eat and how that um, affects our gene expression or the, the nutrigenomics, which I think is a really exciting area. And a lot of it's probably validating common sense or what we've often said, but it's certainly um, shedding new light onto it. So first of all, perhaps if you can just describe how the genes, uh, the food constituents or lack of or uh, can speak to the genes, uh, so to speak, Um, typically we've often thought about macronutrients providing energy and uh, vitamins for cofactors for metabolism and so forth but this really heralds a a new era in understanding how nutrition works so perhaps just a bit of an overall big picture about this sort of nutrigenomic um, dynamic
1: yeah and you know so people have been very interested in how like as you mentioned macronutrients and dietary factors affect metabolism Um, and you know particularly at the level of gene expression now a lot of these studies have been done in animals simply because um if you want to look at like metabolic gene expression and the, uh based on uh dietary intake one of the most important organs that you can do this in is the liver right because liver is where a lot of stuff happens particularly after you eat processes like you know uh enzyme, i mean i'm sorry uh, fats and sugars et etc cetera, et cetera. So some of the most of the data has come out of animal studies. It's a little bit problematic because you really can't do those studies in humans. You have to go and get a liver biopsy from people after giving them a specific meal, et cetera. So, there has, so most of the data is coming from the animal world. But people have like you know certainly identified genes that are the targets of, for example, sugars. So when you have like a high sugar intake for whatever reason, um, uh, you know your liver tries to process it. And in order to process it, it upregulates pathways that, like, you know, metabolize sugar to downstream metabolites and things like that. That's one example. Um, fats are another, obviously, big macronutrient that affects uh, metabolism. Again, going can be at the site of the liver, but also it can be in the intestine as well. And so understanding how dietary factors affect the function and expression of genes in these metabolically relevant tissues is a big deal, right? And again most of the studies have been done in animals, the question is, can we extrapolate what we're understanding from animal studies to humans? And that's where I think there's been some difficulty simply because it's just not possible to do the same type of study in humans. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, so you're limited in humans to looking at things like, for example, in blood cells, which are, you know, easily collected from people, but Looking at gene expression levels in blood cells is not necessarily as biologically relevant as like, for example, on the liver. So I wanted, so the, the point I'm trying to make is that, yes, there's a lot to be learned about how nutrients affect uh, uh, expression levels and uh, how genes are turned on and off. But um, unfortunately, there isn't, as far as I'm aware, a whole lot of those kinds of studies in humans. And so there's still like a little bit of uh, you know, is is a mouse like sort of metabolism the same as humans with respect to how nutrients are processed, et cetera?
0: Great. So, what are some of the studies we have seen in humans? Um, I think there's been some work on the Mediterranean diet uh, outside of the uh, from the PREDIMED study. What's some of the the take home messages so far on on some of these human trials?
1: Um, you know. I- I am not very familiar with that study either, um, so I don't want to, like, sort of say something sure. that I, um, I, I don't want to misspeak, I guess I could say, um, so I apologize for that. That's okay. Um, um, but maybe I can get back to you on That's it or right. something like yeah, yeah. I that. I think
0: um, the pretty med day they looked at, just gene expression versus the controls. a pretty med they. Gave I think one group a Mediterranean diet plus additional olive oil, one group a Mediterranean diet plus additional nuts, and then the other group just as the control. I think they found that they had to, um, terminate the study early. It was meant to go for seven years, but they terminated early because there was clear benefit to the Mediterranean diet in terms of cardiovascular um, disease and so forth. But they looked at gene expression, and that the two Mediterranean diets were upregulated many pro-inflammatory genes and uh, compared to the control diet. But they're starting to obviously.
1: You mean downregulated inflammatory genes? Sorry, yeah,
0: genes it's the yeah, downregulated um, pro-inflammatory genes. That's correct. Yes, right. Um,
1: and this is all in blood cells. I'm assuming, right? Uh, I believe I mean, so. Not, yeah, yeah. So, so that's great because you know, I, I, so I'll, I'll tell you why. In that case, um, that kind of study is uh, gives you good information with respect to heart disease um, because you mentioned this pro-inflammatory or dampening inflammation. So we know that like, you know, blood cells and uh, immune cells uh, are playing an important role in heart disease beyond just cholesterol, et cetera. And we know that heart disease has a pro-inflammatory sort of component. So by showing that a dietary intervention reduces the expression of inflammatory genes in cells that are directly relevant to the disease, in this case, heart disease, that's useful biological information. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But if, for example, you're looking at a Mediterranean diet or any other dietary intervention for an effect on risk of Alzheimer's disease or something else, does like, you know, the tissue that you're limited to looking at in humans, in this case, blood cells, if you look at differences and you see differences in expression, how would that translate to uh, an effect in the organ that the disease affects, in this case, the brain. Right. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So so in the case of heart disease, yes, very informative because the blood cells that you're looking at are directly relevant to the disease. For other diseases, maybe not so much, right? Um, I do know that in people, in, in studies that have done dietary sort of interventions like this with respect to obesity and, let's say, diabetes, well, one... Relatively easily accessible tissue to do gene expression thing, uh, studies on is adipose. You can just get that with a little fat biopsy, et cetera. So, in that case, that might be useful. But, um, you know, in this case, the study that you mentioned, I think that's a very sort of like a reasonable uh, extrapolation from looking at expression levels in blood and then saying, well, this reduces risk of heart disease because of the uh, dampening of the inflammation.
0: Yeah, great. Okay. So it certainly has to be site-specific to get better information to draw exact. stronger exact. conclusions. Great. All right. Well, I want to start looking at other omics, if we can call them that, um, because there's a lot, of out, a lot of different terminology and it can be quite confusing. The first one I want to cover is the epigenome or our epigenetics. Um, I, I know this could be a whole hours now as a conversation, but just from a, a, a clinical perspective, I'm, I'm still grappling on how we can use this information. So clearly, uh, there's evidence of um, our DNA being marked with epigenetic tags, whether it's methylation and so forth. There's sort of almost low hanging fruit in the literature about the agouti uh, mice who maternal intake of nutrients can affect the um, body composition and the the color of the, the fur even um there's the dutch was it the dutch winter hunger phenomenon in world war Two, and i think even up in canada there was the canadian ice storm which um affected the the mothers during pregnancy the stress and the the children thereafter suffer more chronic diseases and it's pinned down to the epigenetics so my, my, my question is is um can we make sense of it from a clinical perspective can we you know, um, modulate it or is it something we just have to watch this space and over time with advancing technology, we'll be able to pinpoint better.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, like for example, you bring up some very good points. Um, the first is, you know, the human data, the natural experiments, if you will, definitely show that there is some sort of like, um, inherited process that affects disease outcome beyond just sort of like inheriting a DNA variation. Right. So it's like, as you mentioned, the DNA is modified somehow with that in the absence of changing the sequence. And that is heritable. Right. And it results in a disease outcome. So the animal studies also support that where it becomes problematic is, you know, epigenetics and these uh, sort of uh, tags that you called it, like the marks on the DNA, vary from tissue to tissue. So one of the questions is from a clinical standpoint is, well, if it is heritable and it's affecting methylation, which tissue is it uh, yeah. affecting? Dan, like, you know, where we need to sort of intervene. Is it affecting methylation in the liver? So we should look at, like, the liver processes or is it an adipose? Or in this case, you know, again, I bring up this thing with blood cells. Do people look at blood cells and show differential methylation as a result of some dietary intervention? Is that really relevant to sort of metabolism? Because the business end of metabolism is, again, like the liver or the muscle or adipose, Right. So those are some of the problems where, yes, people have sort of seen these methylation changes, but to tie them to specific mechanisms at the tissue level, I think, has been a little bit more difficult.
0: Yeah, okay. It's coming back to that that phenomenon again about where you're looking. um, Obviously, research, you don't want to do too invasive a techniques on the, the subjects but um at the same time you still want to gain valuable data so again right. we'll probably have to watch this space all right so let's move on to the next ohm which um, is dubbed the metagenome but probably better known as the, the microbiome so we're now recognized that we're this superorganism where our genome pales in comparison to the the genome that the microbes contain and perhaps there's more flux and um, flow with these um Species coming and going, and this uh, ability for the horizontal gene transfer, where they can almost trade trade genes amongst amongst the organisms. Mm-hmm. So um, now there's some pretty exciting research coming out of Israel about how we actually can maybe personalize our diet, and it all seems to be pointing to the microbiome. So would you be able to give perhaps a, an update on on where the microbiome sits in personalized medicine and, and the omics era?
1: Yeah. So. Um, you know, the microbiome has been associated with diseases for a long time, specifically like things like uh, ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease, et cetera. But what's happened in the last, I would say, maybe almost 10 years or so is that people are realizing it's not just like sort of diseases where the microbiome and, in in, you know, Well, let me back up. So like things like inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis are diseases that are affecting the intestine, right? And that's where the microbiome is. So it sort of makes sense that altered microbial composition can affect the tissue in which they live. But nowadays, people are realizing that, yes, your microbial composition in the gut can change by diet or other means or just simply because of your genetics. And then that affects your risk of diseases that are outside of the intestine. And so I can just sort of like give you a a laundry list almost of like diseases, you know, heart disease, obesity, fatty liver, diabetes, autism now, Parkinson's. I mean, the list is just growing day by day of like the number of diseases that can be affected by microbial composition differences. So, uh, you know, if you want, I can highlight a couple examples for you, um, in terms of like how, um, you know, it's possible to maybe leverage the micro m- microbiome data for personalized medicine.
0: Yeah, that'd be great.
1: Medicine. Um, you know, I, with colleagues at, uh, at, at the Cleveland Clinic, um, his name is uh, Dr. Stan Hazen. He identified a gut bacteria mechanism that produces a metabolite that is pro-inflammatory and increases risk of heart disease. He's shown those sort of things in mice and in humans. So one idea is can you decrease... Uh, let's say, the dietary components that are the precursors of this pro-inflammatory metabolite. You could imagine if you were to do, let's say, uh, you go and you do a microbial composition test, and you happen to carry more, uh, let's say, uh, quantities of the bacteria that produce this metabolite, right? Well, we know that this metabolite is from certain dietary constituents. Can you then alter your diet? by decreasing those constituents so that then the microbes that process that constituent produce less of the pro-inflammatory metabolite. You can imagine that as one personalized sort of nutrition uh, uh, um, uh, paradigm that works through the microbiome, independent of your genetics, right? We haven't talked about any DNA variation. We're just talking about changing your diet to alter substances that are produced by the bacteria that you carry. Um, Yeah. Is that the
0: TMAO, the trimethylamine oxidase?
1: That's exactly right, trimethylamine. So um, if you want to go into that a little bit further, we know that that's made from choline and carnitine. And choline is found in uh, um, sort of uh, things like eggs and cheese and uh, red meat, along with carnitine, which obviously is very high in red meat. So the idea is can you maybe decrease your... Carnitine and your choline intake to reduce your TMAO levels to then reduce your risk of heart disease. If, for example, you have high TMAO to begin with, right? That's, for example, one example. Um, Another one, another recent study that came out that I was particularly interested in was showing that in the case of fatty liver or non alcoholic fatty liver disease, in order to diagnose that clinically, it usually depends on something like either ultrasound a liver biopsy something you know that you know a clinician can then use to diagnose you with with fatty liver that's associated with a host of like sort of other metabolic downstream problems so you really don't want to have fatty liver and this study that came out showed that they can use microbiome sequencing and composition analysis to predict who actually has fatty liver in the absence of a liver biopsy Okay, so thats kind of interesting, that's because correct. then you could say, well, you know I can just sort of like do a microbial composition if I suspect somebody with fatty liver and rather than sticking them with a needle to get a liver biopsy or something like that, or ultrasound which isn't very accurate uh, or as accurate as a biopsy, maybe based on a micro microbiome composition, I can actually help diagnose a disease right yes. And, yes. And, you know so these two examples you uh, um, both uh, ways to personalise health care as opposed to just improving healthcare.
0: yeah fantastic um, and I think uh, Professor Eran Segal spoke at your conference last year because it was in Israel um, this is generating a lot of excitement I think just because of fact people might want to be able to argue that they can eat ice cream now um, about this research is looking at personalised nutrition based on the, the microbiome different people um, when they consume food their blood sugar goes up but it, depending on their microbiome, certain perhaps quote unquote bad foods are now okay for them because it doesn't give a, a blood sugar spike and they've created these uh, diets based on the microbiome and there's ongoing trials. But there are um, tests and um, phone apps now available to, based off this work. Have you looked into this? You're familiar with it and have any sort of views or comments on, on where this is going?
1: yeah i'm I'm a little familiar with the study, not the not the total details, but the beautiful thing about that study was the um but the nature by which they uh, uh sort of obtained their data. so typically when you go and you you know you get like a glucose level from somebody, you just measure their once you know they yes. walk into the somebody draws their blood and that's it, and then they go home and you have a basically one snapshot of what's going on, and what they showed was like a longitudinal repeated measures of glucose and things like that. And so I think it really showed the dynamics of how food is sort of like metabolized at the individual level, right? And, and that kind of study, I don't think, was done. So, in that sense, it was a great study. Um, my small concern is that if you go and you tell somebody, oh, yeah, you know, you ate ice cream and, you know, your blood sugar didn't spike, so yeah. eat all the ice cream you want, um, I'm not sure I, I would go there. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, yeah, there's other things in ice cream that maybe are not necessarily good for you, depending on different things. Maybe not necessarily your microbiome, but on your genetic predisposition yes. to let's how you process fats or things like that. Right, so. It was a nice example, and like you said, they're trying to validate and there's clinical trials, et cetera, but leveraging it to say to somebody, oh, yeah, eat all the ice cream you want, et cetera, without showing that, for example, in those people they don't respond the same way might be a little bit premature. I'm not sure if people are going there, but that's just sort of my thoughts. Okay,
0: great. All right, now let's the uh, next, the uh, what's been dubbed the exposome, which is basically our environment, but if I could narrow it down to the environmental more than negative, the negative, the toxins that can affect our DNA and, and so forth and epigenetics. You've done a little bit of work here, I think, with cardiovascular disease, I think, and particle matter. Can you give us a bit of a snapshot on how this is emerging as a, an area of interest?
1: Sure. So the exposome refers to uh, basically uh, products that, let's say, you can measure in blood, et cetera, that are the uh, result of environmental exposure things that you know the body makes or that, that are, are byproducts of metabolism but things that uh, like you mentioned chemicals or pollutants and things like that um, there's large not large but you know there's there's a good body of literature in certain cases there's things called um, uh, what they call endocrine disruptors these are chemicals that that uh, you know are in found in plastics and other things that you know enter the body just simply because of like you know we drink water out of plastic bottles or yes. we have our containers you know our tupperware etc these things can get into the body and then they can you know mimic sort of biological processes by like sort of uh looking like hormones and things like that and then as as, their, as the name in, in uh, insinuates they're endocrine disruptors they disrupt endocrinolo- endocrinological processes so there is a lot of uh, uh, studies looking at you know could that explain for example the uh, rise in obesity in kids etc. In our work that we've done, we've focused on air pollution. Um, here at USC, there's a there's a large environmental epidemiology group that has had a long standing interest in the effect of air pollution on primarily lung diseases in, in, in particular asthma. Um, but. You know, the air pollution is thought to, you know, exposure to high levels of air pollution um, is thought to increase inflammation in the lungs. And epidemiological data has shown that increased exposure to air pollution is also associated with heart disease. So, for example, heart attacks spike during very polluted days. And so the idea is if you can sort of like quantitate somebody's exposure to these pollutants, can you use that to, you know, sort of like determine what their overall risk is for for heart disease? Um, in the case of like uh, the endocrine disruptors, you can measure those in blood or in tissue. In this case, let's say adipose tissue, because you can obtain that easily. But in the case of the pollutants, the air pollution, there is really no way to sort of quantitate them in blood, probably because they do not actually enter the blood; they get stuck in the lung. Right. So how something that gets stuck in the lung affects uh, the heart is a very interesting question. And one of the thoughts is that that inflammatory signal is somehow becomes systemic. It actually enters the blood possibly through those blood cells that we talked about earlier, which then go on to affect the coronary arteries in the heart. So that's just a very sort of like a a brief overview of two sort of exposures that one could say is part of the exposome.
0: Thanks. Uh, yeah, that's a. It's really a tough one and for me, just with all the uh, EDCs, of environmental disrupting chemicals, endocrine disrupting chemicals, sorry, and sometimes the cocktail as well that could be um, cumulative. And now you're adding this yeah, layer about the um, lodging the pulmonary to affect the cardiovascular. It's um, a tricky area, but hopefully over time, uh, research will tease out ways we can quantify it and also treat it. So yeah. I might... Might be nice, leading um, as you mentioned about the being uh, the the toxin in the in the lung, and then it is sort of metabolic effect. I want to move on to the what's dubbed the metabolome, or measuring what's in the blood as a like a downstream effect. And there's a lot of uh, technology and interest going on here about how that can maybe be a, a good way of tapping into somebody to to quantify their disease risk and, and so forth. Can you also give us an update on the metabolome and and where th- this is heading?
1: Yeah, sure. So so we're very interested in the, in, in the metabolome and in, in doing metabolomic studies. And uh, let me just sort of briefly say why, at least from our perspective. You know, we talked about DNA variation. If you can think of a spectrum uh, leading from DNA variation on one end of it and disease being at the other end, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in between, right? You have DNA. Yeah. We talked about DNA turns into gene expression and then uh, you know expression levels translates to protein levels which then might translate to enzymatic activity and then you know then there's a bunch of other stuff that goes on over you know like let's say a lifetime and then you end up with a disease and we like metabolomics because it is like you know if you will like in the middle of this spectrum it's downstream of all the DNA and like sort of like the enzymatic reactions And yet it's proximal enough to the disease where you can use it to understand disease mechanism or pathophysiology. And so, for example, in metabolomics, people uh, have developed high-throughput methods to to quantitate, just like you would, let's say, cholesterol levels, to quantitate these small uh, molecules that are the result of multiple metabolic and enzymatic processes. Um, They can be as simple as amino acids. They can be fatty acids. You can call that lipidomics if you wanted to. They can be sort of like uh, like products that are produced. For example, you mentioned tea, uh, trimethylamine N-oxide. That was identified using a metabolomics approach. right? Um, so it's a very uh, uh, exciting field. A lot of people are doing it. Um, but one of the problems with it is as follows. If you want to quantitate something in the blood, you actually have to know... The molecule that you want to measure
0: right
1: right because of just the the technology but what people are doing is they're doing well I'm not just going to go and measure metabolites that I know about I'm going to do it like in an untargeted way where I'm just going to quantitate or try to quantitate all of the small molecules that I'm finding in like let's say a blood sample and then the, the downstream work is to go back and actually figure out let's say of the thousands of molecules that you detect You might be able to, like, know the identity of, like, a few hundred of them or so, but then the problem becomes, well, what is the identity of the, let's say, 2,000 that I've detected, right, especially if the levels of one of those unknowns is associated with disease. So then the subsequent follow-up work and all the chemistry workup that you have to do to identify what the metabolite really is, is is labor-intensive, but, you know, you can also identify a totally novel thing for heart disease, for example, like the way Dr. Hazen did for trimethylamine N-oxide.
0: Yeah, great. There was um, one that struck me was they discovered some amino acids it was up to twelve years prior to the onset of um, the diagnosis of diabetes. Is that is that correct? And I think um, it's two amino we, adibic acid. I've seen it a couple times, but um, I thought you might. <laughs> Sorry, oh, you put on this. On the, spot, on the this is the, the spot.
1: work of. Um, Rob Gersten from um, from Boston, I believe. Um, I, th- I think uh, so. W- I'm not familiar with the study, Nathan. So, uh, was it something that predicted the onset of diabetes?
0: I believe that there was the standout markers or the abnormalities in patients 12 years pr- um, prior, and then obviously subsequent right. years later, so, they developed diabetes, and they've pinpointed a couple of amino acids in the blood, and I think even the urine as well. I'll have to to look into it, but that was one that struck me as a you know, a, a, an early warning sign perhaps that it might be developed in the future.
1: That's right. So, so one of the questions, so I, I, without knowing the study, but I, I'm sort of guessing that they had blood samples from people at, at an early time point in which they did these metabolomic measurements, and they looked to see which ones predicted the incidence of diabetes at some point in the future. And this, uh, um, which what was it called? The two, two uh,
0: uh, amino adipic acid, and I think there's, there's amino a couple, I think there's three branch chain amino acids were elevated in the urine as well prior. Right. So
1: that's really exciting because if that shows to be true, could that be used as a biomarker to find if somebody is at increased risk? It's exactly the equivalent of like looking at LDL levels for heart disease, yeah, right? Yeah. Look at somebody who's got high LDL, and then you know that if you were, you know, and, and that's predictive of disease later on. So identifying these new biomarkers is something that both clinicians and scientists are very interested in. And in this case, it was identified by metabolomics. And that's one of the biggest sort of promises of metabolomics is identifying novel biomarkers of disease.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to what, what comes of that. All right, we're about to, to wind up. Um so before we do, tell me about the ISNN. Uh, You've got a, a conference coming up soon, I believe.
1: Yeah, so the, the International Society for Nutrigenetics and Nutrigenomics, um, uh, the, the society was established about 10 years ago to sort of bring together scientists to discuss exactly what you and I have been talking about for over the last half hour or so. Um, and as part of that, the society puts on an annual Congress. Um, it moves around from continent to continent. Last year, you met Israel. The year before that, it was in North Carolina. Um, it was in Europe, uh, in Asia, um, and this year, it's going to be in Los Angeles. Um, I am um, sort of organizing the conference with some colleagues at UCLA, which is the uh, you know the university and the other part of uh, other part of town, um, and we have a great lineup of speakers uh, that. Um, uh, are going to be touching on all the topics that you and I talked about. We have a session on uh, diet and the microbiome where we have, uh, for example, Dr. Hazen and Dr. Rob Knight, who's one of the uh, biggest uh, sort of like players in the microbiome field. We have a session on omics that we talked about. Some people are going to talk about metabolomics. Some people are going to talk about epigenomics, et cetera. And then we, you know, purposely put in two sessions Um, that I think will be very useful. One is to bring in industry. So we think that, you know, at least my feeling is that, you know, scientists just working in in academia and industry people just like, you know, working in their offices and things like that are not going to move the field forward towards sort of like a coming to a consensus. And so we have a session on industry academic partnerships uh, to sort of move the field forward. And then lastly, we have a session on where does the science stand for, like you know, the practice of medicine, like all these things that we've talked about. Are we ready to make, let's say, precision medicine recommendations based on genetic and dietary information, et cetera? And so, we hope to have a broad audience and uh, sort of, like you know, address these questions and hopefully have it be very productive. Right. Oh, I should mention when it is. It's between September sixteenth to the nineteenth in Los Angeles, and the website is isnn2017.org.
0: Great. And so I'll put the links on our webpage. And f- right. also, you've, is it open source? You've got the Journal of uh, Nutrigenetics and Nutrigenomics?
1: That's right. So the Society also has a journal, um, Journal of Nutrigenetics um, and Nutrigenomics. And, you know, we'd like to sort of improve the the uh, visibility of the journal. It's It's getting better and better, but Several studies have been published in there that sort of uh, uh, on the topics that we've talked about, but, um, you know, the more exposure we get and the more that this sort of like uh, we disseminate the, the knowledge to, to not just like, you know, scientists, but to, again, like the clinicians, to registered dietitians, to, to practicing physicians, et cetera, um, uh, the better. And that's one mechanism by which we can do that.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's been a thrill for me. It's been invaluable. Uh, I really feel your passion and your excitement and uh, you're certainly well-rounded in all the omics um, and you've got this great ability to, to translate that to, to clinical practice and make it a bit more um, digestible. So I really appreciate the time you've um, donated to us to help us get our heads around this landscape and um, I wish you luck in the future.
1: Nathan, thank you so much. It was my pleasure um, and uh, I hope uh, we can have more productive discussions
0: soon okay i'd love to catch up in the future
1: (laughs) all right thank you thanks very much thank you for listening to the metagenics clinical podcast find us on itunes and leave a review Join our practitioner only
0: metagenics facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases keep up to date with key industry updates and more visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter